0: I love prunes. More teens need to eat prunes. Teens need to have more prunes. We're just We need to just have prunes out, like on a charcuterie plate, just have a bowl of prunes. I'll eat them.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today is Nicole and Day on the Taste Podcast, and I'm so happy to welcome one of my favorite voices in food to the program. Nicole is one half of the popular food podcast, A Hot Dog is a Sandwich, and can be found on the Mythical Kitchen YouTube page. We debate and discuss some of food's biggest controversies and dig into her background as a young eater growing up in Los Angeles. We also talk about the cookbook she wrote, Bake Up!, which is a baking cookbook geared towards teens and tweens. We found out the single recipe that can unlock the joy of baking for a very young cook. It's a wild ride here with Nicole, and I'm really happy to welcome her on the show. Nicole and welcome to The Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I am so happy you're here because I have been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now and, and have to say it is, it is my favorite. You are my number one seed.
0: <gasps> oh my gosh, that's a big deal. Thank you so much. I, I love doing it, so I'm glad that it trans, transitions into like another person liking it too because I enjoy it as much as I, as much as I enjoy being on it. I enjoy listening to it too.
1: Yeah. And it's called, um, hot dog is a sandwich, um, with you and Josh co-hosted yes. how, do, okay. Like, let's take a little bit of, um, time to, how do you come up with the questions that you answer in each episode? What, was there a process to get there?
0: Yeah, we are huge fans of brainstorming and ideation. That is an incredibly important part of this job. As much as we kind of like... Also, can I say bad words? I just want to You can say bad words. Yes! Um, Yeah. I love that. Uh, As much as we like, you know, dick around and and have like silly conversations, a lot of the times we have research, we have um, brainstorms and ideations to come up with weird, wacky debates. So a lot of it's pre-planned. But as soon as the record button goes on... It, like, leaves our brain.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So all the information that you've been prepping for is there, but you're not, like, there's no, like, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. You're going live.
0: Very little. If it is, if ever, Maggie just, who's the best podcast producer ever, just comes and sweeps in. She's like, i do that again. But that happens very rarely, so...
1: Well, that's how we roll in the Taste Podcast, nice. and you know, so we're just gonna keep we're just gonna jump into some topics because I saw you that you posted about crackling oat bran on Twitter, and I was like a little concerned that you were actually snarking crackling oat bran because I'm oh gonna...
0: opposite. Ahead, I love geriatric cereals. <laughs> old people cereal is my jam. Give me a Wheatabix, Give yeah. me grape nuts. Give me crackling oat bran. All those old people cereals are my jam. I it's, like them more.
1: It's so molassesy. I love it. I yes. love it dry and wet with oat milk, <laughs> whole milk, chocolate milk. Maybe not, actually. Um,
0: <laughs> I love, I just love the weediness of, of it all. It makes me feel good about my breakfast choices. Even though there's probably more sugar than Lucky Charms, I don't care. <laughs> the oat negates it.
1: What about Fiber One? Where do you fall on that?
0: I, I don't like Fiber One, but yeah. I do like Kashi Lean.
1: I mean, there's a whole go peanut butter hive out there, right? There's like, there's definitely its own fans.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I like, I just like cereal. It's, it's my favorite food to eat at like midnight though. I don't like to eat cereal in the mornings. I like to eat cereal like late at night as like a snack.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. So take me back. I want to know how you came to Mythical Kitchen. And we'll link to pl- lots of the videos in our show notes. And I, I I love Mythical and I love the vibe there. But how did you enter that mythical world, which is really its own world?
0: Well, I have been a fan for some time. I loved watching Willits. I I think the first mythical episode I ever watched was the oxygen taste test, which I thought was so silly. And it just reminds me of, you know, being a kid in Las Vegas and seeing those oxygen machines. And I'm like, we're living in the future. So um, that was the first episode I saw. And it just kind of started my obsession with the show. I'd watch it every single morning. And then I started noticing the food. And I, you know, I worked as a food stylist and a research and development chef before that. And I would just watch it. And I'm like, huh, I could probably do that. Probably a little bit different, maybe even a little bit better. So I did a little bit of sleuthing and I found Josh Sherr, who is my boss, and um, I messaged him and I said, hey, do you need an assistant or do you need any help in in GMM or mythical food stuff? I'd love to be a part of your team. And then um, he didn't respond after a while, but then I continued to poke and prod. And I'm like, Hey, like, I'm serious. I love this content. I have the chops. Like, let me show you what I can do. And then eventually he was like, yeah, come on in for an interview. So eventually, uh, was there yeah. like
1: a kicker message that got you into the interview? Was there like,
0: Hmm. I don't think so. I think after a few messages, I was like, I was just very persistent and, you know, sliding into the DMs is a choice, but <laughs> I, I did it. And I just knew that like, if I keep asking, I'm going to get what I want. And it happened and I had my interview and I felt at home instantly. It was like the weirdest thing. I just went into that interview process and I felt so comfortable talking to everyone there and i josh took me to like the nightmare drawer section where we had all the like weird stuff like the bugs and the bittrex (laughs) and all the stuff and i'm like i'm very comfortable with you like i knew all the stuff in there in there too so it was very natural so love
1: that and i want to go back to your your development days your r&d days I'm, i'm envisioning like chili's um test kitchen you're inventing a type of popper
0: oh i never worked for like restaurants i worked for yeah. consumer packaged goods so i was better so i was in the so cpg game for a little bit which was very very fun i got some really cool opportunities i got to go to like uh, where did i get to go i got to go to walmart uh corporate which was really fun and i got to go to their innovation kitchen which was super cool i was like 23 years old and i'm like holy crap like what am i doing in bentonville arkansas But it was a really fun experience, and I'm, like, so blessed that I got to, you know, learn about the CPG game at such a young age, so.
1: Is there, like, a CPG product that you have, like, a little bit of your fingerprints on? Is there something, like, that you can say, I I actually take credit for that?
0: You know, your girl signed an NDA, so unfortunately I can't go into detail about it. But I have had a few things on the shelves of Walmart, Target, and stores of that Of Was it, wink
1: if it's a waffle, waffle waffle-related (laughs) <laughs> okay, so not <laughs> winking. This is not a video show. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll move on from that, but I appreciate you, you, you saying. So when you joined uh, Mythical, you were thrown into the fire. So tell me, because I know we have a lot of fans of Mythical listening to the Taste Podcast because you guys have a huge following. What was like one of your first kind of challenges that you participated in? Because I feel Mythical Kitchen is nails it with like the challenge. It's all about the challenge.
0: So do you mean like mythical kitchen content or more yeah. like GMM content? Yeah. Um, when it comes to – do you mean like challenge shows yeah. or like yeah, competition exactly. or, shows? Yeah, or, or exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, um, I had no idea how competitive of a person I was until we had challenges like boys versus girls and me against Josh or anything of that sort. I had no idea. I had this deep-seated desire to win until I was told, hey, you got to make the best – blank you got to make the best queso you got to make the best burger and I'm like hell yeah I'm going to make the best burger so it it was so cool because I'm so used to being you know behind the scenes like I was so used to producing and they're like they just kind of support like at mythical they just want us to you know be at the forefront they want us to do a little bit of everything which is what I love about mythical they don't want you to be a one-trick pony they want you to know how to do everything so you can be self-sufficient so that's the cool thing about working at mythical.
1: It also seems like it's a lot of work. Do you, are it's you working work. like 12-hour days mostly?
0: No, I I've kind of I've kind of learned a little bit more balance the more that I've been here, so no more 12-hour days, but 10 10 and a half Respect.
1: No, it's definitely um, a lot of work that goes into it. I will link to some, some videos. I want to hear a little bit about you and your background. You grew up in a Persian Jewish household in Los Angeles. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what was the food growing up and did you celebrate Shabbat and do you have any Shabbat traditions?
0: Oh yeah, um, Shabbat is a big part of my life. Uh, I have it every single Friday with either my family or my in-laws. Um, it is definitely part of my personality. Everyone at Mythical knows Fridays. Nicole has to go home and light Shabbat candles. So it's a very so it's very inundated in my in my culture at Mythical too. I talk about it a lot because it's 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 a part of me. It's always been a part of me. And the Persian part I talk about all the time because um, I just think it's important for representation. Like for, you know, if there's a Persian girl, you know, watching this or listening to this, like I want to let them know, like, you don't need to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. Like you can do different things that, you know, your mom and dad might not approve of in the beginning, but they'll absolutely see you shine and see you grow and they'll support you.
1: Tell me about the Shabbat table, and and I have to say, you know, with the rise of you know anti-Semitism and just like you know bat, evil and ugly stuff in the world, it's great that in a, to a mainstream audience you're talking about the Shabbat traditions and demystifying misinformation that might be out there about Judaism and and stuff like that. I just have to shout that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I just hate to see it. You know, I just hate seeing the rise of anti-Semitism. It really breaks my heart. And it affects me deeply and, you know, it affects my friends, my family, my husband, even people at work. It, like, hurts a lot of us. But at the same time, it's one of those situations where we have to remind ourselves, like, the the Jewish people are strong and we can, you know, overcome just about everything. So um, another thing with Shabbat tables, um, there's always at my Shabbats we uh, have—what is it called— Have you heard of gondi before? Mm
1: -mm. What is that? Gondi? So
0: gondi is a Persian Jewish matzah ball. So we make it with ground turkey, chickpea flour, and it's this beautiful chicken soup with tons of onions and turmeric. And it's this beautiful yellow hue. And we always have that on Shabbat with a side of rice and tadig, which is the crispy bottom of the pot.
1: I, I love the the visual uh, of of having a matzah ball with actual meat in it because matzah balls during Passover I felt can be a little leaden. So the fact yeah. that you're having a turkey ball makes it more is sense.
0: Delicious! It's full of cardamom and black pepper. Sometimes you serve it the balls as like an appetizer with some bread and some sabzi. So sabzi is like a bunch of like fresh herbs. We have tarragon. Rehun, which is Persian basil, radishes, green onions, and you just make the perfect little bite. We call it a lochmeh, and then you just make little logmas of it, and it's one of my favorite experiences. I love Shabbat at my parents' house. I like, it's just the best.
1: It's a nice tradition, and we had Andy Baragani on the Taste Podcast a few episodes ago, and he talked about what a sabzi is in his house, which is kind of a flexible, it's kind of like kimchi, right? It's like, it's more of a category than an actual recipe.
0: Yeah, I think Sabzi is whatever you get fresh at the market. Whatever looks good, you grab and you put on the plate. Yeah, it's funny how you kind of like, <laughs> like you just eat raw herbs like a cow kind of chewing on its cud, but I do love it very, very much. It's a nice cut through the richness of Persian food, so.
1: So how did you learn to cook? Are you classically trained? Did you go to culinary school or or was it more like by feel and flex?
0: I am a culinary school graduate. I um, was... My whole plan in life, I was uh, at community college and I was planning on becoming an English professor. I've always loved English. I loved reading. I loved writing. I loved poetry. I loved all that stuff. And then when I was 19, I got a job at a chocolate store because my dad always instilled in me like, Nicole, you have to work. You have to get a job. You have to know how the real world is, which I'm absolutely 100 percent grateful for. Um, So I got a job at a chocolate store and I was, you know, slinging chocolates as a sales associate. And in the back, there was a research and development kitchen where they were coming up with the most insane, cool chocolate combinations like wasabi ginger chocolate, curry chocolate. And they had the most insane pantry of herbs and spices from all around the world. And I was like, holy crap, this is a way that people make money. I had no idea that you could be so creative and do what you love and make money doing it. So I was like, I kind of knocked on the door and I was like, hey, uh, question, can I stodge in the back of the kitchen for a little bit just to see if I can do this or if you guys like me and then they're like absolutely 100% and it was just it just started from there it was my catalyst and from there I dropped community college I went to culinary school and I'm like this is it like I love food and I'm gonna make this my career one way or another
1: what did your dad say when you said you were dropping out of community college
0: my dad was like if you think you're going to do it and if you think you're going to be successful, 100% do it.
1: I love that. What a supportive yeah. family. It's cool to hear that. Yeah.
0: It was it was nice. At the beginning, my mom was a little bit uh, like skeptical naturally because she's like, you know, she's and she came here in the 90s like her kids to have a good life. So she was very unsure. Of what this was she's like you want to go into the cooking world like you we came here to give you guys an opportunity to be whatever you wanted and i'm like well this is what i want so she came around a few years later she realized like oh this is legitimate well
1: so. you got gone on youtube and got like two million streams yeah. and she's like okay that this works this makes sense yeah. she's
0: like all right Makes sense now.
1: Um, I have to ask about chocolate because what a interesting category to really jump into because it's such a technical food and like just the tempering of chocolate. Did you like pick up a lot of technical skills in that stage?
0: I did. I learned a lot. I learned more about baking because aside from it being a research and development kitchen, it was also a coffee shop, like a working coffee shop. So I wasn't necessarily there tempering chocolates as much as I was baking cookies and cakes and different pastries, pan au chocolat, cinnamon buns. So I was more in like the cooking and baking area, but I still learned a lot about chocolate, like how chocolate blooms and like the temperature it needs to, in order to be like a perfect chocolate bar. So I learned stuff like that too.
1: I mean, pan au chocolat, just like the sheeting of that and, the, and doing a croissant dough. I mean, how, how the heck do you make a pan au chocolat?
0: Oh my gosh, it is a labor of love, especially if you don't have a laminator. Like That's how right, we the did. laminator,
1: had, the sheeter, yeah. We yeah.
0: had to do it by hand. No. And, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it was hilarious, to say the least.
1: Oh my gosh. Have you been down to Kombi and had their croissants ever?
0: No, but it is on my list. I have seen it and I just kind of, I just marvel at it. It is such a beautiful p- baked good. Oh, oh yo.
1: Well, I'll link to us an article that we published with Akira and Nick from Kombi and it talks about, it's really fun about how they smuggled in the sheeter from Japan. Oh! <gasps> This laminator. Wow, that, that's um, so badass. <laughs> it's badass, but I mean it just shows that learning back to you, learning um to make a panna cotta that you're actually gonna sell for money is ridiculous.
0: It is. It it <laughs> takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of research, and a lot of development. So
1: You grew up in Los Angeles, is that correct?
0: I did. I grew up specifically in Beverly Hills my whole entire life. Cool. Yeah. Nine
1: oh two one oh, right?
0: Nine oh two one oh. Well, I was I was nine oh two one two. Okay. But if we're getting specific
1: <laughs> round down, um, the re did you watch the remake at all?
0: No, I never <laughs> watched it. No, oh, I God. like refused. Cause yeah. I just, I just didn't, I just, I don't like trash TV like that. You know, <laughs> I just, I just don't.
1: Yeah, no, it's it wasn't good. The remake, the original has its merits, but this is not a TV podcast. Yeah, this I'm sure actually- the
0: OG, my sister used to watch the OG one all the time. Oh, and the I would, OG was so good. And I would and I would like I was my sister's 13 years older than me. So I wasn't allowed to watch, you know, like Melrose Place and 90210. But I would always like kind of sneak and try to look. At all the all the like cool sexy stuff but then to chew me away
1: <laughs> well spoiler alert donna martin does graduate so just so you know there we go good to uh, know good um for her. so let's go back to um some of the the topics from um a hot dog is a sandwich but because really honestly my favorite show because um a lot of i don't listen to a ton of food podcasts having doing one i mean You know, what I mean, like it's kind of I'm more about like, you know, Bill Simmons. Sorry if that offends you, but it's (laughs) basketball, more basketball stuff. But
0: that's okay. I don't know anything about sports, so you can just name any you can talk about any sport and I will just nod my head and say, okay.
1: (laughs) bless you. That's 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 the best way to go through life. But, um, But I wanted to go over a couple of topics because. I feel like our listeners, we can like vibe a little bit about some of the top like the topics of the show. But like, first off, like one of the questions from the episodes is titled, What time does brunch start and lunch start? Like, how did you negotiate that question?
0: Well, uh, I just looked at Josh and I'm like, hey, and also he sits right next to me. So I'm like pretending he's in the room with me. I'm like, so we were just like, hey, like, what's like, have you ever been to a brunch where someone says, come to brunch at like 1130, but it's a Sunday and you were drinking the night before and your hair's this way and your makeup is smeared. Like, how are you supposed to get ready at 1130? But at the same time, if someone invites you at 2 p.m., that's lunch. But what about 230? Is that lunch? What if it's 155? Is that lunch? So just conversations like that. We just we literally just look at each other and we're like, do you want to talk about this? And yeah, I feel both
1: you go to the go to the hill Go to the, go to the mat. That's the term I'm looking for. Go to the mat for for certain topics, but then sometimes you'll just like edge off, right? You guys have that kind of back and forth, right?
0: Yeah, we we used to have these conversations because in the, in the beginning days of Mythical Kitchen, it was just me and Josh cooking together. So these conversations were super natural to us. We would just be talking like, I was like, hey, do you like drums or flats more? And then he'd be like, oh, I like drums. I'm like, why do you like drums? Flats are obviously better. And then it was just, a, it was a natural debate that we would have in the kitchen. And they were like, hey, can we make money off of this? <laughs> and <you laughs> Yeah, you can.
1: <laughs> a sales guy was walk, walking by in a suit and a hat, and he was like, yeah. his, his head like turned, and he's like, well, yes, you can. I yes. mean, it's, <laughs> it's a great show. I have to ask you. you, I mean, like honestly, what flavor is Dr. Pepper? I mean, it, it's very hard to figure out.
0: So I don't drink a lot of Dr. Pepper. I'm more of a Barks Root Beer kind of girl. But if I were to put my finger on the flavor, I would say it's these five. Vanilla, cherry, prune, amaretto, and just cola that's how i feel even though they say there's no prune in it there's prune
1: in prune it prune right. has a special level of sweetness that i love it, prunes it's very 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 sweet like it's like i
0: adore it yeah it's a good the one the flavor of pr- more teens need to eat prunes Teen, teens <laughs> teens need to have more prunes but just, we need to just have prunes out like on a charcuterie plate just have a bowl of prunes i'll eat them
1: yeah, we're kind of in that fig category a little bit too much. We, we we push figs a little bit hard and prune should be kind of in there. Why, why prune? Like, tell me, I'm used to like, speaking of grandparents, the one that was in my grandparents, uh, you know, cupboard, that prune. So what's a good prune taste like? Uh,
0: well, it has to be a little dry on the outside, but when you squish it, it needs to be squishy inside. Also, my whole entire life too, like my mom did not buy a lot of like snacks. So our snacks were normally dried fruit or nuts. So I grew up mostly eating like a lot of dried apricots, a lot of dried cranberries, a lot of a lot of prunes. So a perfect prune is as such. It needs to be slightly dry around the edges, but still needs to be squishy in the middle, it needs to have a sheen on it. And then you just bite into it. And it's like, it's almost like a jam on the center.
1: I think it's different from an apricot. So an apricot, you want to have a little bit more of a toothsome feel. It's not a jam, but so prunes are a little softer and jammy. Yeah. yeah.
0: Have you ever had a slab apricot? Uh, uh-uh. no. Oh my God. If you ever on the shelves of America, see a mm-hmm. dried slab apricot, Matt, you have to eat it. Okay. And then you have to tell me how much you like it. It is my favorite dried fruit of all time.
1: I, I read an article. I think it was Dana Goodyear in the New Yorker wrote about the apricot farmers of Syria. And, and like, I still have thought about, I've actually never had an apricot that actually was an apricot, right? So slab apricot,
0: slab apricots—they will change the game for dried fruit for you. I, I love guarantee that. it.
1: I switched to the British pronunciation because of you, so appreciate that. I went apricots <laughs> to apricot or Midwestern. <laughs> apricot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about your book. So you wrote a cookbook. Um, I did. It's and it's it's really fun, and we don't talk about books books for kids that that much on the Taste Podcast. But I wanted to talk to you because it's it's called Bake Up. Um, go from beginner to pro with recipes and essential techniques. And so it's a baking book for young, young people that is really hard to execute. I must say.
0: I, I agree. It was hard to execute, but I used to before, again, I've had so many weird jobs in the cooking sphere. I used to teach kids cooking classes and children are incredibly smart when it comes to food. They are so talented and they just – they you tell them what to do and they do it and they do it well. All they need – all kids need is direction and confidence. And they can pretty much do whatever an adult does. But I will say this. Whenever you want to touch fire or turn on an oven or turn a stove, you got to have a parent with you. That's what I – I definitely say that in my book more than once. Like parent supervision is very important during this process. So –
1: so which which what's the age that you're writing for? Was it like teenagers?
0: It was it's kind of like ages like like eight to like seventeen. Yeah.
1: So what is then the best recipe to start with? Well,
0: it's the first recipe in the book, which is granola. Ooh, smart. Yes. Tell A me more. Beautiful, easy granola. It has tons of nuts and a beautiful O and then just like tons of sweet stuff like maple syrup, a little bit of cinnamon. It's like the perfect granola recipe.
1: I'm I'm really happy you say that because I think granola is a recipe. I think a lot of folks won't make granola. They'll just assume that it's better in the bag. But when you make it, it's actually better.
0: I love homemade granola. I think, I think it's a skill. I learned how to make homemade granola at the chocolate store, actually. I'm like, you can make this with your own hands i had no idea and it's always fun whenever you get a good cluster you know a good special oat cluster
1: gosh yeah the, the extra yeah. oat cluster with a little bit more salt than the other bites mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the one that's the guy good stuff um when you're teaching a kid to cook you know eight to fifteen you know mm-hmm. what are you what are you trying to because you know it takes time right it's a lifetime um task to learn to cook and uh-huh. And so what what do you want like an 8 to 10-year-old to get out of cooking from your book?
0: I want them to learn to follow directions, number one. It's you got to know what you're doing before you finish it. You got to read the whole recipe front to back. You got to know what you're doing. You have to understand that if you miss step four, you're not going to be able to complete step 10. So I think it's teaching children to be thorough is the first thing. And number two, again, confidence is the most important thing you can instill in a kid. I think teaching a child to be confident and have that internal monologue of I got this is incredibly important. And I think doing that through food and through cooking and through eating different things, it can teach a child to be incredibly confident.
1: So smart. I I like the fact that it's like follow directions. I think most parents out there would be very happy to hear uh, that there's a text that says follow directions, right?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's so important to say like, hey, you can learn to do this yourself. You just have to remember to read every single step, and read every single piece of equipment and every single ingredient you're gonna need. And if you do that, they'll learn themselves. Like, oh, I need to do this in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,
1: I have to ask you about LA a little bit because it Please. is by far uh, you know the greatest food city in America. Anybody, any mm-hmm. listener of this show knows. I say that often. Um, but first. Where are your Koreatown spots? Where, where are you having Korean food?
0: I wrote them down.
1: Oh, thank you for prepping.
0: Can I tell you something? I go to the Korean spa at least once a month. So... Uh, I go to We Spa, I go to Sentry Spa, I go to Spa Palace. I like, I love Korean spas. I go there. It's like my natural reset button. I love it so much. So what I do is I go by myself. And then typically what I do is I look up <laughs> or I drive and it's like Korean food. And I just and I just look and I say, that place looks good. And I go eat there. So that's how I, and I love exploring by myself. I've always been the kind of girl that like jumps in her car and If I want to go to, I don't know, Boyle Heights to get a good taco, I'll go. If I want to go to K-Town and get some bomb bulgogi, I'll go by myself. I've always been that kind of person. So the places that I love, first of all, I love toboki. It's one of my favorite foods in the world. Yupduck has some of the best toboki I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And I just love hmm. Yep. 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 I love the bowl it comes in. Mm-hmm. And I love the way they swirl the cheese on the top. It's like hypnotic.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I, I feel duck is a, some, a dish that we don't, maybe we, we only a duck boki, right? Only duck bokeh mm-hmm. is what we know, but there's all sorts of versions of it, right?
0: Oh, yeah. You can, they have like a list and you can add whatever your heart desires in there. You want to add corn in there, you can add corn in there. You want to add ramen, add ramen. It's incredible. Uh, my favorite KBBQ spot is Hai Jang Chong. I love them very, very much. I love the stone. I love that I get to cook on a stone. It feels very primal instead of having those grates. I love, and I love how how the ladies come and they clean the stone with wet radish. I am obsessed with that.
1: I love when you can use an ingredient as a tool and then maybe yes. eat it, maybe not, but it's not. It's like great juju like to actually use things like very efficiently
0: totally i just love that is like my go-to spot with the homies like anytime we want to go throw down some kbbq have some beers hang out and enjoy ourselves hijang chong is the place if you're ever driving in k-town and you see a pig with a chef's hat and two knives arms crossed that's Jiang chong and i love it so much uh next is um MDK noodles. So I went to MDK noodles by myself again and um I decided to get the the really spicy cold noodles. I don't know what they're called.
1: Young, probably. Was it red?
0: It was red and yeah. they gave me a pair of scissors.
1: Oh yeah, Young, yeah. Definitely.
0: And I was like, uh, what do I do with these scissors? <laughs> and then I I had some and then I was like, it's so chewy. I'm going to choke on this. That's what the scissors are for. You need to cut them so you don't choke on the on the beautiful chewy noodles. So I was sitting there and then I was like, okay, so I would just eat and I would snip and I would eat and I would snip. And then a lady came up to me and she tapped on her shoulder. She goes, have you had this before? I'm like, no. She's like, you're doing pretty good if you ask me. I'm like, thank
1: you. Oh, what a, what a compliment. Thank Nicole, you for
0: validating me.
1: Nicole, you've <laughs> tapped into such a great Korean dish. Mool I think it's what you're – or yeah. bibim I'm not quite sure mool is fit seafood, I think. I might be getting this wrong. My apologies. But I feel like that effervescence with the sauce and then the cold noodle oh, is so, so nice. So
0: it is nice. so nice. It's spicy as hell. It's chewy as hell. It's cold as hell. You look at it and it and it's inti- it's an intimidating bowl of food, but you get into it and you're like, oh my god, what have I been missing my whole life? So
1: I love that. Give me a couple other LA spots,
0: just in general, like yeah, LA spots. Yeah. Okay, my favorite restaurant, I'd say, is Philippe's French Dip. I love that place more than life itself. Uh, I go. I actually took my husband for the first time, and he like shook his head after said, "Yep, now I get why you like this place so much." Obsessed with Philippe's if you are ever in LA just go just go trust me do they still have the
1: varnish in the back
0: the varnish is that (laughs) is that
1: is that the place with the varnish with the cocktail bar in the back
0: I've never... So I only go during the daytime. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, 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 I've yeah. never seen the cocktail bar. I think
1: I'm getting that one right. I could be getting it wrong though. So, Oh, oh no,
0: that's that's another place in oh, downtown LA yeah, yeah, that yeah. has the varnish. I've been there before. Oh, okay. I don't know what it's called. I think it's called Pete's or Pat's, something like that.
1: Oh, okay. Very
0: good. Very, very good. Cool.
1: So so tell, talk about Philippe's. What, what is it? What, what makes <gasps> it so special?
0: Philippe's is an LA institution. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Philippe's is a... It's a restaurant that's been around for maybe like, I don't know, 1929, 1939, something like that. And um, they have, they say they're the originators of the French dip. I don't know if they are, but I I will stand by it. And they just have, it is the most fun experience. You go in and there's a cashier lady in the front, but you don't need to pay with her. She has a bunch of merch and a bunch of candy. She has like Necco wafers and Chico sticks. And then you turn to the left and then you stand in this line and then there's these lovely ladies at the counter with their cute little hats and their name tags and their outfits it looks like you're like in the 50s it's incredible and then you see a big jar a big pink jar of deviled eggs (laughs) not deviled i'm sorry pickled eggs pickled yeah pickled eggs just trays and trays of coleslaw and then the ubiquitous uh french dip and then you just go there and you say hey can i get a french dip wet with cheese and then they do it and then well my favorite is actually i love the lamb french dip dipped once with american cheese it's probably my favorite but i do also get a beef dip as well and you get a pickled egg and then you get coleslaw and then you get a fountain drink of your choice and you go back in time
1: I love, and the coleslaw is it in a scoop formation or is it in like a separate like uh, plate?
0: It starts as a scoop and then with time it slowly sinks into the plate. <laughs> but I love that place so much. I think that's one of the places in LA like everyone has to try for I sure. I love
1: it. Uh, one more LA spot?
0: One more LA spot. Yeah, uh, one more. I'm just on. one? Just okay. one. I know. <sighs> okay. If you're ever in Westwood, go to Shamshiri. It is uh, my favorite kebab place in all of Los Angeles. Rafi's is a close second. Yeah, I've uh, heard Rafi's for sure. Shemshiri is uh, that's where my dad goes with his with his poker friends. So um, I've had that food many, many, many times in my life. It is consistently the best kebab in Westwood. The owner is great. You can see the flames licking on the sides of the kebabs, and it's just beautiful.
1: I love that. And a kebab is, is something that I think Americans in particular maybe associate with chicken, which is not really... The scope of kebabs in LA, right?
0: Yeah, when it comes to Persian, I mean, there's a million kebabs, million types of kebabs. But Persian kebab is typically either barg, which is filet mignon, or kubide, which is meat. But you can also get chicken kubide, and you can also get lamb kubide. But I love—we call it a sultani, so it's one stick of uh, barg and one stick of kubide with beautiful. Persian rice. And I always get a half Shirazi salad because I got to stay healthy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Sounds delicious. Well, Nicole, we ask all of our guests on Taste Podcast, if there was a dream cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of budget or deadline, meaning you have unlimited of both, what would that book be?
0: Um, It would be a, well, first I would have to probably travel to Iran so I would go to Iran and stay there for a year, and then I would come back and I would write about all of the Persian dishes I learned from, like, the small villages. That would be it.
1: I okay. think um, from your point of view, from, like, an American point of view, it could be really fascinating. I, I mean, I, I would love to to see your take on the recipes that you're okay. finding in these small towns.
0: One day. I mean – I. I really want to go to Iran. Like that's my dream. Like I really want to go there and just go to all the little pockets that my mom and dad talk about all the time, and just eat the food there and sit there and just bask in the country where my people are from.
1: Well, I look forward to reading that book, Nicole Niyati. Nicola Niyadi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Matt. I had a blast.
1: So Alon Shia and Stephen Fenvis, welcome to the Taste podcast. Thank you.
2: Yeah. You're glad to be here.
1: I'm really it's it's an absolute honor to have you on the on the show Stephen and Alon, wonderful to have you back on the show. You we did a we did an episode in 2018 back at Books Are Magic.
3: Yeah, it seems like forever ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. It was an absolute, uh, that was a fun event. And, I, and I'll and i link to that in the show notes. But um, Stephen, I wanted to get a little bit of your story first. Um, okay. You are a, a Holocaust survivor. Uh, you're 91 years old. And you and Alon have connected through food. First question for you is, you know, what is the memory of your mother's cooking growing up?
2: Well, number one, it was the cook's cooking and not my mother's cooking. Uh, I was brought up in what I would term a upper middle class family and in a very poor country where if you, for the level of uh, uh, income that you had, you were obliged by social pressure to hire a cook, a maid, and a chauffeur. It, uh, don't, don't Google your eyes. The the (laughs) local norm was that if you could afford to buy a car, of which there may have been about 100 in a town of 100,000, then you could certainly afford to build a little hut on top of the garage and support another family by hiring a chauffeur. Cook was the same thing. So uh, my mother had a cook. Uh, Her name was Marish. I don't know her last name because I... Never, never heard of her being addressed by her last name. It was always her last name, Marish. Uh, she was a big, strong woman. And uh, my sister, who's two years older than I, the two of us were never, never much welcome in her kitchen because hmm. whenever we pretended to help, like uh, shelling peas, or hulling berries, uh, more went into our mouths than into the dish that we were supposed to
1: put there. <laughs> wow! So um, uh, actually, you were no help. You were no help.
3: I can <laughs> I tell you, ahead. I can tell you, Stephen, that's a cook's worst nightmare. <laughs> well, it's one for the guests uh, and, two, and two for you. I, <laughs> my closest
2: contact with uh, Maurice during the day was after coming home from school. My mother was always sitting at a bench where she did some artwork or handiwork or something. My sister and I nestled against her and the cook appeared with a snack. Uh, Could have been just a freshly boiled potato. Could have been some delicacy from the the gizzards or the liver from the fowl that she was cooking. Uh, Odd things like... uh, uh,
3: uh, the innards of the bones, uh, 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 yeah, uh,
1: bone marrow. Yeah, and 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 the, it sounds like the 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 cuisine. And and to be clear, you were growing up in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia. Um, the cuisine um, was was heavily Ashkenazi, you'd say. What did you say that uh, was?
2: Our cuisine was heavily Hungarian, Magyar.
1: Hungar- Hungarian, uh, okay.
2: Uh, we, fa- My family did not keep a kosher house, uh, very few traditional Jewish dishes, one that was uh, always served. Uh, my paternal grandmother was much more observant than we were. She prepared every Friday night the uh, bean dish called sholent, which in traditional houses was taken to the bakery to bake in the oven. And then taken out Sunday for serving without having to work. That was always the, the main dish on, on, for the Saturday. But other than that, uh, uh, very few typically Ashkenazi dishes in the, in the menu.
1: Well, so we'll get to the way the way you the two of you came together and some of the food you're making together. But I want to know, Stephen. You know, everything changed um, with the war, uh, and you were forced into a, a Jewish ghetto. Um, can you please, you know, tell us what life was like in a Jewish ghetto for you, and if how food was treated in a Jewish ghetto. Uh, I
2: was in two ghettos, the local. We were expelled from our apartment and had to move with one suitcase to a local ghetto, which was a, a row of uh, derelict houses facing the uh, freight, freight car depot dep- dep- of, the, of the railroad station. Uh, one, one or more families per room, uh, five to eight families per outdoor fountain, or outdoor outhouse, uh, very uh, irregular food uh, treatment, food uh, availability, If uh, but the ghetto was not very porous and the, there was not enough barbed wire in town to increase the whole uh, place. So former servants and others were often sneaking in the back and bringing food, etc. After a week of that, we were herded into boxcars uh, by Hungarian gendarmes. I never saw a German soldier until I arrived in Auschwitz and moved to a larger really concentration area where all the Jews from the southern district of uh, Hungary were, uh, were uh, In turn, even more uh, chaotic situation, Uh, we were assigned as pad space in what must have been a chicken coop at one time. Uh, I I had to bribe people to get my aunt and her mother nearby. Uh, Total total, uh, food was, uh, people were lining up only to find out that Line was somewhere else. So the, the food was uh, very insufficient, but still better than what followed when we were deported to Auschwitz.
1: Um, so we should get to that part of the story, which um, you should share as much as you want about what the deportation was, what happened. And then I'd like to hear about the cookbook that um, has survived and is now in the museum in Washington, DC, um, you know, it's at the, uh, United States Holocaust museum. Yeah. In
2: one, in one year, I was in two ghettos, I just described three concentration camps, uh, one, three train rides in blocked box cars, uh, uh, no food, no drink, sanitation, one bucket, uh, that overflowed the first hour and one death march. I was finally liberated in Buchenwald, where I arrived on the death march the night before the, the Americans arrived.
1: What happened to your family?
2: Uh, at, at the railroad siding in Auschwitz. Oh, okay, let's back up. My father, together with all the Jewish leadership, doctors, pharmacists, uh, newspaper men like him were deported very early in the German occupation. Uh, eventually, sent to Auschwitz, and he, from there he was sent to, to a coal mine in Silesia. My mother, sister, and I were on the train together to Auschwitz. I saw them. Uh, men were separated from women. I understand from my my sister. That she was separated from our mother, and that our mother perished in the first few weeks, uh, just just dying of hunger. Uh, my sister survived. She uh, was shipped out of Auschwitz to a factory that produced uh, light bulbs. Eventually, uh, was liberated in Bremen, Buchen- in Berlin, Delsen and we were reunited in, uh, in Subodiza. I was, after liberation in Buchenwald, I was in the, uh, for a, I think a month and a half in a field hospital that the American army uh, set up. Uh, eventually, uh, we were, uh, Repatriated to Yugoslavia. I, I was the first of the family to be there. Two miracles happened. Number one, our father, whom nobody ever, ever expected to return, did return on a Soviet army military hospital train, totally broken physically, emotionally. Uh, could never accept the loss of his wife, and he died uh, three months later, fifth of February, nineteen forty-six. Uh, the other miracle was our cook Marish reappearing, unbeknown to us, while we were moving to the moving out of the apartment to onto uh, the ghetto. My our cook joined the people lined up who were waiting to loot the apartment. To this day, I don't know how that was advertised, but every we were living on the second floor, and every rung of every uh, of the staircase was lined with people waiting to ransack our apartment, yelling at us, screaming at us, spitting at us. Among them, unbeknownst to us, was Modis. She went in the apartment with the rulers, very methodically, went to the bedroom, and picked up uh, Mother's thin diary of our early uh, childhood, typical for two, two child families: two and a half years for my sister, five months for me. Then, then. The diary ceased. Then she went in the kitchen, picked up the recipe book, and then she went went to what had been my mother's studio, and found a big uh, folder and pell mell pushed into it all the words on paper that she could lay on hands on.
1: She uh, really understood what was valuable to your family that's a that's a real miracle as you say
2: absolutely right and uh, you see three of them behind me those those are uh, school drawings of my mother's Uh, she kept it and uh, returned to us when my sister and i escaped from yugoslavia uh, two years later we gave it back to her to guard and eventually in the Mid '60s, she sent the things to us in in the states.
1: Well, that's a incredible story. So, thank you, Stephen, for sharing that. Um, I'd like to go to Elan and and just get your your side of how you and Stephen connected during the pandemic, and you both started cooking through several of the recipes that survived this remarkable. They they the, the book went through this remarkable journey home. So, Alana, I would like to know a little bit of your connection and and maybe some of the recipes that you've worked on.
3: Yeah, I um, I met Stephen through the cookbook. Really, first I was at the Holocaust Museum, Memorial Museum here in DC, and I was looking at um, culinary artifacts from the Holocaust and. we were in the room with all of the, the archives and, and we were looking at all these recipes, some of which were written in the camps. Um, and when we came across the cookbook, uh, the, the curator mentioned that Stephen uh, spoke regularly at the museum and didn't live too far away. And, and I thought that what, a, what an incredible opportunity to have firsthand um, you know, conversation about what I was looking at. And, and I always was really fascinated by the idea that people, you know, they put a lot of food is tied to so much emotion and it's tied to so much that makes people happy or can at least bring people comfort through memory and I think that's a testament to the to the the reason why Marish knew that the cookbook would be so special to the Fenves family that she, you know, that was one of the few things that she saved from their apartment. Uh, and I always like to kind of understand more about that and and kind of dig in deeper to say, like, well, why why is this food so special to people and what what impact did it make on their lives that they that some people you know risked their lives to save these recipes, Marish being one of them. Uh it 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 was uh a life-risking uh move that she she put her life on the line to 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 help the Fenvez family. Um and so I, I feel that you know in in the basement of the museum, or in the archives, where people can't see what's in the drawers, lies these treasures and lies these these really incredible artifacts that people, uh, you know, risk their lives for. And I I uh, I wanted to bring some of those recipes to life, and I wanted to cook them, and I wanted to you know, get an understanding of like, uh, not, not that you can easily translate a recipe or the food to, to the emotion and to the importance behind it. Um, but it does take you a step closer to it. And, uh, I reached out to Steven, uh, through the museum and, and said, Hey, you know, I, I came across this book, and uh, I would love to cook some of the recipes, and I would love to send you some of the food that I cook, and I want you to taste these these recipes that you probably haven't had since you were 13 years old, and um, and we, we had planned to do it in person, and then COVID hit, and we began kind of a virtual friendship uh, through... Uh, email and phone calls and, and Zoom links, and uh, Stephen began translating the recipes for me because they were in um, in Hungarian, and what other languages were they in, Stephen? Were they- no, they were all Hungarian. All in Hungarian. But also mentioned that they were practically
2: unreadable because of the food spots, et cetera, in them until the museum digitized the cookbook
1: and I could read it. Oh, wow. They lightened it up and they were able to make it more legible. That's amazing. Let's get to some of the dishes. I'd like to hear some of the the most, for you, Alon, the chef, you know, what are some of the dishes that you maybe had never really seen in your culinary journey? And then, Stephen, I'd like to hear for you, like, what did it taste like? Like, are these These must have been real memories coming back.
3: Well, the, a lot of the dishes I, I had never even conceived that of, um, one was, uh, one of Stephen's favorite dishes that he translated was a, a recipe called semolina sticks, which is essentially like a polenta made with semolina and milk. Um, so like a cream of wheat, uh, and you boil the milk and you whisk in the semolina and then you, you let it. Chill on, on a on a baking sheet, and then you cut pieces from it af- after it's chilled, and then bread it and fry it, and and so I've I've done something similar with polenta, but never with um, wheat uh, or semolina. Usually only with corn. Um, so that was a dish that I um, I had never seen before, and uh, and Stephen told me that it should look like fish sticks when it was done. <laughs> and, then, and so I used that as a frame of reference. Um, another dish that was was really interesting that actually wasn't in the cookbook, but was one that Stephen had talked to me about that was one of his favorite food memories was a, a turkey in which, a whole turkey in which his mother would um, cut the meat off of the turkey and grind it up with... Um, spices and onions and parsley, and then pack it back onto the turkey, like uh, in the shape of the turkey, and then roast it. And what? Then, oh my gosh. So it was kind of like a turkey meatloaf yeah. on top of a turkey carcass. And wow. Stephen and his sister uh, Esty would, uh, they would kind of rip off all of the, the turkey meatloaf part and they would fight over the turkey meat that was stuck to the bones. And so oh,
1: the best part! I made
3: that dish for Stephen and sent it to him. And I made sure to leave extra turkey meat on the bones. Uh, knowing that, it. that was his favorite. Uh, potato circles was another interesting recipe in which was like a, a yeasted potato dough, like a potato roll dough that was rolled and cut. Uh, and then a mixture of ground lamb and sour cream uh, was put on top. And then it was proofed, and then they were pan fried. Uh, So there were these little hors d'oeuvres that were kind of like these lamb and potato donuts almost. And Stephen, you know, said that he was, he remembers seeing them on the counter, but he was never allowed to eat them because they were for visiting guests only. Uh, And so his parents entertained a lot at the home and would bring guests in. And so a lot of the food from, the cookbook were were recipes that were made for visitors too, and yeah. uh, and so it really I think kind of shows like the real life of of what life was like for them back then. Uh, Stephen told me a lot of stories about how he would go to the market with his aunt, and and they would bring back all of these fruits and vegetables, and they'd come home, and and him and his sister would help to kind of peel and cut and prepare the vegetables to turn them into jam and preserves uh so there's a lot of preserves and a lot of jams in the in the cookbook uh a lot of pastry recipes torts and cakes um using walnuts and poppy seeds and so these are all dishes that i Really had never seen before. I, I, I may had seen like a I might, might have seen like a version of them, um, but not not really the way that they were listed here, and uh, and and they were not also really written out as recipes as we know them to be today. You know, it was uh, there was a recipe for uh, a date cake, and uh, the the date cake said to um, take uh, 10 decagrams, which I I had never heard of a decagram. That just means 10 grams, uh, take, take, you know, 10 or a decagram of dates and, and mix with, um, butter and sour cream and flour and sugar and bake, you know? And, and so there was, there was not very much to work with as far as detail. And so I had to kind of um, talk with Steven about it and say, well, what do you remember? What is his
1: memory? What is his flavor memory of the moment? Like, was it sweet? Was it savory? Was it, you know, these types of questions I'm sure came up, right?
3: Yeah. And and I knew that there, that I could only be able to do this with, with Steven as, as so much of the other, um, artifacts, you know, the, the people that donated them and have the first hand memory of them are no longer alive. So, uh, that was really a special part of it. So, Stephen, let's find you're
1: cooking with Alon tonight. You're at Joan Nathan's house apartment, which in Washington D.C. and that must be really cool. What's going to happen at the dinner that that you're hosting that also serves as a fundraiser for the American Holocaust Memorial Museum, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum?
2: Alon, ask for recommendations. I translated about a dozen or so recipes, two or three of appetizers, main dish and desserts, and alone, more than on one round, sent me uh, images of the uh, prepare, prepared, finished material as well as intermediate images of cooking uh, We discussed some of them, and then it was agreed that he would make, uh, provide packages for uh, the uh, moderator and us to test a few of the things. And I said, while you are doing that, put mine in five parts so that I can resend it, four of them to our, our four children. And Matt said, oh, that's no problem. We ship frozen food all the time. So he, he shipped uh, to every child separate. Every
1: oh, for separate. kids, are they all over the country?
2: All over the country.
1: Oh, so wow, they that's amazing.
2: And uh, <laughs> uh, we tasted it, he discussed it and we tasted it. My wife, Norma and I tasted them. And and our, uh, our uh, uh, moderator, who uh, I don't know if y'all don't know, is not well and she's not going to moderate on Sunday. Uh and we had we had uh, enjoyment and talked talked about it while they show was going on. So it was a
3: great. Visit. One of my biggest fears going into this was not doing the cookbook justice or not not creating the recipes in a way that would really, you know uh, sh- that would really represent what Steven's family was cooking. And so I, I had to, you know, test the recipes and send it to him to make sure that I got the, the thumbs up. And some of the recipes <laughs> we had to go back and forth on a few times, like the poppy seed tort and the walnut cake uh,
1: mm-hmm. didn't
3: nail the first time. And it wasn't the way that he remembered them. And so he would give me feedback and I would make it. again. You gave some strong notes, Stephen?
2: Yes. He didn't roll the dough thin enough. So that we can get multiple roles out of it. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, and so the menu for uh, the dinner that we're that we're hosting is all based off of the recipes from the book and recipes that Stephen and I have tested together and and I've sent him and then other recipes as well picked from the, the translated recipes to uh, to showcase mm-hmm. uh, and. You know happy to say that before the event has even happened we've we've raised a hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars and that money will all be spent on on hiring people to digitize the artifacts from the Holocaust and be able to get this information in front of thousands or millions of people versus, uh, just filed away in, in a safe place. Uh, and I think that especially with things like the Fenves Family Cookbook, the fact that not only Stephen and his wife Norma are able to now taste some of the recipes from the book, but also his family and uh, his children and their children. And uh, what one thing Stephen and I have talked about throughout this journey together is that Um, this is a really great way to talk about life before the war and to think about the positive memories of life. And, and um, it, you know, it's, uh, it's special to be able to do that. Before 1939, there was a, there was a really rich, beautiful um, life that, that his family led and, and his, and him and his sister would get kicked out of the kitchen by the by Marish, and they would be told not to eat the potato circles on the countertop, and and all these things would happen, and, and this is a way to kind of bring some of those memories.
1: I love that. Well, I'm going to wrap up with one more question for you, Stephen. I'd like just to get a sense of what you enjoy cooking and eating right now, and it, it doesn't have to be the food of your youth. It could be anything. I'd just be very curious.
2: Oh, uh, I, I don't consider myself a gourmet, but I certainly am a food addict. Uh, the food that uh, we, my sister and I received in our home had been a great influence on us. Certainly, wherever I go uh, new, new city, new country, new continent I go and try out the local cuisine. That's and uh, uh, do that. So, and I'm very, very grateful to Alone for having initiated this, who having brought this attention to the people, Uh, the recipe book was was out on an exhibition for a while, but then it went back into the archives. Who knows who and when would ever again uh, encounter it and do something with it. Now it's out. Uh, We have two successful videos on it it's been reported in the Jewish press extensively uh, the local people in, in Yugoslavia have just produced a uh, printed version of the original hun- Hungarian text of the of the uh, uh, recipe book uh, they have, they're having some trouble getting uh, export permits to send me the books. That, The the one one copy I have uh, tomorrow night, I intend to to pass it on to Alon because he's really the one that's responsible for
1: it. Well, that's beautiful. Well, this is a fundraiser for the collection of record at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I'll link to that in the show notes. I suggest everyone visiting the museum um, if you're in Washington, D.C. Alon and Stephen, I really thank you for sharing story and steven uh thank you especially for for doing uh what you do and spreading the word about jewish food in you know in your hometown and in your life i appreciate that
3: thank you very much thank you matt
1: the taste podcast is hosted by me matt rodbard it's produced by pat stango and edited by clayton gumber theme music by steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.